Philippians chapter number one, please. The book of Philippians chapter number one. We'll, we'll finish our review tonight, and that will take us up to Philippians chapter number three. But just as a reminder of what we've touched on the last two weeks, um, reviewing the first two chapters of the book of Philippians, of course, we'd been through uh, Philippians 1 and Philippians 2 before going outside, and now we've picked back up with the book of Philippians, and we're simply doing a review. You remember we've, we've talked about each of the two previous Wednesday evenings that the book of Philippians is an epistle of joy. Some 18 or 19 times, you'll find that joy is, uh, comes up one in one form or another, either as joy or rejoicing, or I have rejoiced, maybe Paul would write. You will not find that sin is brought up in the book of Philippians, which says something of the connection between Paul and the church at Philippi and also the state that the church must have been in at the time of the writing. Somebody's called the book of Philippians the Psalm 23 of the New Testament, and certainly that would be a good statement. You remember we said the church has a many-fold uh, testimony. It has a riverbank testimony. It has a jailhouse testimony. And it has a prayer meeting testimony, born out of a prayer meeting. And we're reminded that every church has its own unique uh, testimony. Philippians 4.4 4 says, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I'm convinced that uh, that's the key verse to the book of Philippians. Uh, that verse, you could t put the whole burden of the book upon that verse. We talked about Paul's heart in the book of Philippians. He has the heart of a pastor, chapter 1, verse 7. He has a heart that is free from envy, chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, he has a heart filled with Christ, chapter 1, verse 21. He has a heart that is fixed on heaven, chapter 1, verse 21. And uh, then we said something about Paul in each chapter. In chapter number 1, he's Paul the prisoner. He mentions my bonds four times. Chapter number 2, he is Paul the preacher, one of the most profound paragraphs in all the Bible. Paul pens it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter number 2 concerning Christ. In chapter number 3, he's Paul the prospector. He says that I may know him. He said, I've not yet apprehended. He said, I've not come to the end of this thing. I want to know more about him. And then in Paul, uh, in chapter number 4, he's Paul the peaceful. Last week, we talked about how that in chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, uh, you remember the message, no doubt. Uh, we, we talked about uh, fond memories of a faithful church. Paul rehearses chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul's prayer for the Philippian believers, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The things that happened unto Paul, chapter number 1, verses 12 to 19. So look with me at verse number 20 of Philippians 1. I want you to notice again, very briefly, Paul's faith in brief. Paul's faith in brief. Chapter 1, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul's approach to life was with caution. There is a mindset that is out in Christendom today that basically thinks that, that we have no responsibility once we're saved, that the Holy Spirit just takes us along, and we're held captive 
and we just pretty well do as he bids us do. But you have responsibility, and I have responsibility. Paul said that in nothing I shall be ashamed. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 to 27, Paul likens the Christian life unto a race. And he says, I, I don't fight as one that beats the air. I'm not like the boxer when he gets in the ring and announcements are being made and shadow boxing. He said, I'm engaged in warfare. And he said, I don't want to be a castaway at the end of this thing. Paul didn't want to preach to others, get to the end of his journey and have to be put on the shelf because of sin in his own life. So you and I need to realize that you, we have a responsibility to live the Christian life. We have a responsibility to shun evil, the appearance of it even, to not engage in sin and sinful practices. Paul's approach to life was with caution. Here he writes that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Secondly, he writes with all boldness. He's talking about preaching Christ. That's Paul's aim in life is that he preached Christ with all boldness. John Henry Jowett said of preaching, we are not appointed to give good advice, but to proclaim good news. The sinner who is lost without Christ needs the good news regarding Christ's crucifixion on a Sunday or a Wednesday, a revival meeting time. The child of God who is struggling needs good news from the good word as you come to a service. And so burning in the heart of the Apostle Paul is the desire to preach Christ and to make him known. And then Paul's passion in life was that Christ be magnified in his life, whether it be by life or by death. If living, and you know some of what he's going through in this prison epistle, if living the life he's living, if that brings honor to Christ, so be it. If dying, and he is soon to die, after the writing of this epistle, if that brings honor to Christ, so be it. He has resigned to the will of God. He's resigned to Christ receiving honor from his life. He writes in this verse, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now, in chapter number 1, verses 25 through 26, you remember we talked about Paul's dilemma. Paul's dilemma with life or death. Remember, he starts that section out by saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then in verse 23, he comes to this statement. He says, for I am in a strait betwixt two. That word strait gives you the idea of the dilemma. He's in a narrowed place. He's at such a place that he can't turn to the right. He can't turn to the left. He can't move forward. He can't turn around. And what his dilemma is about is about going to be with Christ, which is far better. He said, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. The idea of that phrase, far better, is far, far better to be with Christ. But he said, I have a desire to go be with Christ, to depart this life and go be with Christ. That word depart is interesting. Just to mention one of the meanings of that word depart, it carries with it the idea of a team of mules at the end of working in the field. At the end of the day, you take them back to the barn, you take the harness off of them. There's a relief. Uh, Betsy has had horses. Jane, y'all have got horses. Anybody that's ever ridden horses and you've ridden them hard and 
worked him. At the end of the day, a lot of times you pull the bridle, the saddle, or you pull the gear off of them if you're pulling them to a wagon or working them in the garden or the field. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll go out and you'll almost think they're celebrating. They'll roll around in the dust and dirt and they'll run and rip and roar. Paul said, I'm ready to be turned loose. He's been harnessed for some years now. It's been hard labor for him. He's tired. His body's wore out. His mind is wore out. He said, I have a desire to go on and be with Christ, which is far uh, better. But he said to be with you, to remain with you, is more needful. He gets it settled, doesn't he? Look at verses 24 through 26 for time's sake. He writes, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. He said, if God lets me live, it's going to be profitable for you. He knew that heaven awaited him at the end of this life, and he longed to go to heaven. You remember, he didn't know if it was time for him to die or if God was going to leave him. But he gets peace about this thing. Verses 24, 25, and 26, he said, it's more needful for me to stay here so that you may be profited. The weary apostle, uh, uh, if, if God would have said, I'll give you three wishes. If it had been us and we'd already been called up into the third heaven, heard sounds, it could not be repeated seen sights that we could tell nobody about. We had to keep it all secret. I mean, you how blissful and worshipful it is over there on the other side. If he had come up to me and said, I give you one wish, I'd have said, let's go. Um, but Paul says, I'm willing to postpone that if that be the will of God and stay here with life and all of its wranglings and difficulties so that you be benefited. Christ be honored. I quoted John Henry Jowett a while ago. I want to quote him one more time. He wrote this about verses 24 to 27 in Paul's attitude. He writes, to have helped somebody a few steps along the heavenly road, to have infused a little more holy courage into their spirits, to have given a more exuberant swing to their stride, these services abundantly justify a delay in the journey and will assure for us a more glorious welcome in the Father's house. I like that, don't you? I've, I've often asked, I haven't so much last year and a half or so, but I've often asked who it is maybe that has invested in your life. <laughs> Where would you be without them? Those dear brothers and sisters in Christ, those mothers and fathers, those gray-haired saints that walk before us so faithfully. Uh, those shouters and singers, those preachers, those testifiers, those Sunday school teachers, uh, to put a little more exuberant stride in our journey. Uh, we owe a great debt of gratitude to them, do we not? Certainly we do. Then you remember we moved on to the end of the chapter, verses 27 through 30, and we talked about conduct becoming a Christian. And you remember we wound up two or three nights there, and so we wound up adopting the uh, the, the phrase, you, you know, the, the black gentleman that said, be who you is, because if you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. And we titled it, Be Who You Are. Be who you're called to be. That's what verses 20 
7 through 30 is, is all about. Paul reminds us of our heavenly citizenship as believers in verse 27, not to read all the verse, but the beginning of the verse says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, that word conversation is not talking about our, our lingo, our language. It's not talking about that at all, but it's talking about our livelihood, our manner of life, the way that we live. The idea of it, it carries with it uh, our citizenship. If you'll study the word, we are citizens of two worlds, citizens of two countries. We have dual citizenship as God's people. So Paul reminds us of our heavenly citizenship as believers. And then he, he admonishes us to our earthly cooperation in verse 27 among all of us. And then verses 28 through 30, just to mention it, Paul gives us an evident revelation in the lives of believers. If we are saved and living and walking with Christ, then there'll be Christian behavior displayed in our lives. Chapter number 2, look at verse number 1 with me. In verses 1 through 4, this is Paul's call for unity. And we titled that look into that section, A Sweet Fellowship. A Sweet Fellowship. We talked about, in verse number 1, the advantages of a sweet fellowship. Watch watch how Paul words this. Chapter 2, verse number 1, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. Now, what he's saying here is, if these advantages are to be a part of our church fellowship or any church fellowship, just some things going to have to going to have to be, and one of those is going to have to be unity in our church, any church body, as far as that is concerned. So the advantages of a sweet fellowship, he says, if there be any consolation, any encouragement, he says, if there be any comfort of love, that is, um, if 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 as we come out of the a, a world of darkness, if you will, into here, uh, there ought to be some love. There ought to be some comfort of that, encouragement of that. Any fellowship of the Spirit, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we do not get along with each other. Any bowels and mercies, compassion in the congregation. If you're going to have that, you're going to have to have some other things. And in verse number 2, we have the ingredients of a sweet fellowship. And he encourages the same mindset and unity here where he writes in verse number 2 of chapter 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, Of one mind, he says the same thing four times over, in essence, in verse number two. And so, and we want to, uh, we always want to display a love. T.S. Rendell says that love always is visible, always. If it's the love of a father in the home, that will be visible. He'll show you that. If that's the love of a mother in, in the home, she don't even have to tell you. She'll show you that. That's the love of a child for their mom or dad. They don't even have to say it. They ought to say it, but they, ought, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have to, right? They'll display that. Love always is visible. Then verses 3 and 4, we talked about what poison a, poisons a sweet fellowship. Paul first says a word against being selfish, and then secondly, Paul speaks a word about being selfless. I almost feel guilty about even mentioning verses 5 through 11. I've preached them those verses ever since I've been here, at least I think once a year. But Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord, Paul writes. Verse 6, I'm only going to throw this out there. 
you see Christ's preexistence, his deity. He is God, a very God, verse 6. His humanity robes himself in flesh, verses 7 and 8. And then his glory, verses 9 through 11. There are those who say that they won't bow the knee to Christ. Of course, they will. But you rest assured, the whole world could declare that they're not going to bow the knee to Christ, not going to give him any glory. I'll promise you he's not going without glory tonight. All of heaven bows to Christ. Well, we looked at chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. We looked at the outworkings and the inworkings of the believer's life. Look at verse 12. Here's the outworkings of the believer's life. This is our part in the matter of salvation. We'll read the verse in just a moment. Some have the mindset that somehow that once we're saved, that's it. That's all it is to it. Now we're headed to heaven, so that's it. That's not it. That's just the beginning of our walk with the Lord Jesus. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, watch what he says, He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To work out comes from a word that was used several ways. I'll give you two ways. Number one, it was used of the miner. He goes down into the mine, and he mines out the ore, the valuable ore. Or it was also used of the farmer that would would till the ground. He would sow the seed. He would... uh, Uh, He would work his crop to yield the greatest harvest. That's our part in salvation. And we were to do so with fear and trembling. So there's the outworkings of the believer's life. It's a process, isn't it? Growth is a process. The Lord's looking for people to cooperate with him in this journey of faith. And then there's the inworkings of the believer's life. Verse number 13, The Bible says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. That's God's part in the matter of sanctification. Isn't it amazing how the Lord will work in your life at just the right time? I say a lot about trials. Have you ever thought about trials when you went through them in life? Had you have pulled into the parking lot of a trial 10 years prior to whatever perhaps is your greatest trial? you might not could have handled it like you handled it at the time you went through it. It's God that works in us. I marvel that he would save me. I marvel that he would work in my life after salvation. I marvel that he would save me knowing what he got in salvation, but knowing what he got after salvation. Let me say it like this. I I wish I read the Bible as much as you thought I read the Bible. I wish I prayed as much as you think I prayed. You understand what I'm saying? God knew what he was getting when he got. And yet he's still willing to work. Now, we're not usually too patient with working with people. But aren't you glad he is? He works truth into our lives. He works it out of our lives. 
You ought to be able to put a mark where you were saved. And you ought to be able to put a mark in your life here and say, you know, I have. I have. I may not have covered what old brother so-and-so has covered, but I have covered some ground. God, he was working in my life, and I was doing my best to be obedient. I've dropped the ball, but I am right here now. Not just in age, but in maturity. We move to chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. We titled that, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Supposed to Let It Shine. And we are. I'll just give you the thoughts we gave you that night and we'll move on. But we're to be light in a world of darkness. You know that as well as I. We are to conduct ourselves appropriately in this world of darkness. And we are to share the word of God continually in this world of darkness. The only hope our lost loved ones have is that we share the word of God with them. We share what Christ has done for them. How will you meet Christ? Chapter number 2, verses 16 to 18. There's a dreadful way to meet the Lord. Verse number 16 of chapter 2, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. We don't want to have spent our life as a believer, saved, yet so as by fire, do we? We don't want to do that. We want to be able to meet him well. We will meet him bowing, but we don't want to, don't want to meet him ashamed. We want to meet him well. After all he's done for us, the least we can do for him is be faithful to him. Brother Doug Jones used to say, often, after all, who do you know that loves you the way that God loves you? Or maybe you said it like this, who do you know that knows you like God knows you and yet loves you like God loves you? After all he's done for us, the least we can do is be faithful. Paul did not want to have run in vain. There's the delightful way to meet the Lord. He rehearses, verses 17 and 18. In chapter number 2, verses 25 to 30, there was Epaphroditus. I, I think we need Epaphroditus-itis to catch on in our churches, right? You remember we said he's a charming Christian, and he is. Number one, if you'll look with me at verse number 25, Epaphroditus, he fulfilled his call. Verse number 25 says, yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Epaphroditus fulfilled his call. First of all, he's a family servant. Paul said, he's my servant. He called him my servant. He's ministered to me, Paul says. He calls him a friend in service when he uses the phrase companion in labor. Isn't it good to be able to get in the yoke by your brothers and sisters along with them in this business of serving the Lord? He calls him a fellow soldier in one phrase. Then he calls him a messenger, a faithful minister is what he's saying. Epaphroditus fulfilled his call. Epaphroditus loved his church. You remember how that he hazarded his own life um, to go see Paul on behalf of the Philippian church. He's right nigh death. They get word about him. He's going to stay with Paul, but after he gets his strength back, Paul knows they're worried about him, so he sends him back as soon as he's able to make the trip. Epaphroditus loved his church. His, lo his church loved him. 
And uh, it's, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture, verses 25 through 30. And then, Epaphroditus sacrificed all for Jesus Christ. Two phrases. Twice in verse 27, verse 30, once in each verse, twice you'll find the phrase, he was nigh unto death. That's Epaphroditus. He just wouldn't stop. Verse number 30, not regarding his life. In other words, you sent him to me, and he meant to make the journey. He meant to be a blessing, and he was a blessing. And then lastly, we looked at chapter number two, or excuse me, that was, the, that was our last message we looked at. I've skipped one right here. Uh, Timothy, uh, verse number 19 through 23. Timothy, we called him Timothy the real deal. Some of these little boys every now and then will flex their muscles, and they'll, they'll come across like they're the real deal. Little southern boys, tough guys. They're the real, well, Timothy's the real deal. In verse number 20, he's the real deal. This is exemplified in the, in the love Timothy displayed. He, you could call him a genuine soul. Here's what Paul says in verse 20 about him. He says, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. He said it just comes naturally to him. He's the real deal. He knew what Timothy's tendencies were. They were the same as his when it comes to ministry. He says Timothy's the real deal. This is exemplified in the Lord that he served. Look at verse 21. He says, for all seek their own. He said, not Timothy. In essence, that's what he's saying in context. He says, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Timothy was the kind that gave everything and expected nothing. He's just glad to serve. He's glad to give. He was thankful he had an opportunity to minister. We need more of that. Then lastly, verse number 22, Timothy's the real deal. This is exemplified in the life Timothy lived. Timothy is a genuine servant. Verse 22, but you know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he hath served with me in the gospel. The life Timothy lived. But you know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he hath served with me, with me, Paul says, in the gospel. As we get into chapter number three, we'll take six or seven messages out of each, the third and the fourth chapter of Philippians. And We'll, uh, we'll try to go through this book of Philippians. I want you to pray for me. I'm not looking beyond Philippians, but I am too. I have something working in my heart. I let a little of that out, I think, Sunday. But um, the epistle of joy, the epistle of joy. Uh, we want to finish this epistle before we go farther. You remember we were talking about joy and how we need each other in the church, and we used for an example one night as an illustration the Andy Griffith show, the episode where uh, where Sheriff Taylor goes and gets Aunt V, and and she she stays with Andy and Opie, and she just didn't fit in. Opie just couldn't get used to her. He may have been a bit jealous of her. And you remember they took her frog catching. She didn't do any good with that. They took her fishing. She was afraid to take the fish off the line. They tried to throw the football in the front yard, and she wasn't any good at it. She was a little discouraged, packed her bag, wanted 
wanted Andy to take her to the bus station, take her home. Andy come, uh, Opie come running down the steps, and he said, Paul, you can't take her. She can't go. He said, but uh, Opie, why not? He said, Paul said, she can't catch a frog. She can't take fish off the line. She can't catch a football. She'll never make it out there on her own. I don't know where I would have wound up in life were it not for the church. Sometimes we get used to the routine. But I want to encourage you, keep doing the routine. There's joy in it. Don't take it for granted. There's joy and there's strength. And we do need each other. We can't make it out there without each other. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to dismiss in prayer. You're getting out of here early tonight. You're to leave shouting. Thank you for being here. Brother Troy Montgomery, would you dismiss us, sir?